2: Market-moving insight and analysis join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Leslie Picker. Cramer has the morning off. Stocks remain on track, finally, for a winning week. Retail puts a few more gainers on the board. While you have Snowflake and NVIDIA raising questions about growth in tech, we do have Broadcom VMware, one of the biggest M&A deals of the year. Our roadmap begins with inflation, supply chain, and the state of the consumer. Macy's leading the latest wave of retailers reporting.
3: Plus, as uh, Carl just indicated, Broadcom does make it official, a $60-plus deal to buy VMware. We'll
2: dig into the details.
4: And Apple under pressure. The company reportedly set to produce fewer iPhones this year than expected, Carl.
2: We're going to start with the markets looking to extend yesterday's gains. Interesting action the last few days, guys. We mentioned the better mix of retailers. We've had some blowups the last few days, but a few more winners today. And as B of A points out, uh, S&P trading above the midday point of the session, closing above that for four straight days, longest streak in a few months.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the market was saying, yeah, I know you think that I'm in this bear market territory, but I'm going to show you wrong this week. It's like my toddler, uh, you know, when I tell him you're acting like a bear, and then he just becomes all sweet and kind and cuddly. Um, it just tries to, to defy what you think it's going to be. But to your point, curve is steepening. We're seeing yields tick down a little bit. Uh, lowest level since mid-April. Uh, so definitely some positive sentiment. At least it feels that way this week going into the holiday weekend, of course, the end of the month. You have some calendar, uh, some seasonality there. But, hey, good news. We'll take it.
3: Sure, we will. Uh, You know, listen, uh, we mentioned uh, at the top, uh, Carl did Snowflake and NVIDIA. We're gonna get deeper into that. But I mean, once again, sort of raising those same questions that may have been raised by Snap. Maybe less so, but on Snowflake's call, talking about the consumer-facing cloud customers, still growing, but believe as they are impacted by macroeconomic headwinds, their consumption will be impacted. That is Snowflake, of course, talking about consumption patterns that may fluctuate quarter to quarter. Raising once again that question of overall demand uh, and whether things are slowing.
4: And supply chain issues, of course, as well, which seems to be particularly difficult for tech. Retail this morning, though, seems to be weathering supply chain challenges much better. Dollar Tree, Dollar General saying that they are facing some headwinds on that front, but they're able to control them. They're able to manage them, and therefore uh, those stocks have done much better than analysts were expecting. Yeah,
2: interesting. The, the way it's playing out in retail is that the low end apparently working as consumers, look, some consumers, do look to trade down. And Dollar Tree, Dollar General are good examples of that. But then the high end's working. Um, Nordstrom, we got some constructive comments from Chanel this week. It's sort of the middle ground of the Walmarts and the Targets and the Coles, where there have been some challenges. Uh, but the Dollar Tree guides uh, in line Uh, comps 4-4 looking for 2-1. Dollar General uh, boosts their guide. Um, And Williams-Sonoma is probably the standout today. Comp's 9-5, almost three times the estimate.
4: And what's interesting is, is, as a banker I was talking to earlier this week pointed out, that there's kind of this YOLO idea of the summer, and I think Macy's is benefiting from that. Uh, One of the, the big benefits to their earnings has been kind of higher margin items, people buying dresses to go back to weddings. When I say YOLO, I mean things that people haven't been able to do for the past two years. They're still doing that. That's part of the reopening trade we've been talking about uh, for, what, a year and a half at this point, a year at this point. Um, Still benefiting companies like Macy's that do sell into some of these events that people are excited to go out and do again. Yeah,
2: Gannett even says uh, our customer continues to shop. More occasion-specific, as you point out, going into the summer, more in-store. And we've been watching inventory numbers all week long, David, but up 17, actually looks pretty good relative to some of the 40% numbers we've gotten from some specialty.
3: Yeah, Uh, and talking about a notable shift back to occasion-based apparel and in-store shopping. You can see it right there, as well as continued strength in the sale of luxury goods. And so when they talk about the rest of the year remaining focused on their customers, that's smart. Usually you want to stay focused on your customers, Leslie. Yeah. I found that's good. I mean, if you aren't Benny off, you're also focused on your employees. You made that clear with Sarah yesterday <laughs> in that extraordinary interview. Very clear. But your customers are important. Uh, we're going to be hearing from Gannett later in the program as well. Interesting mm-hmm. to, to hear what his thoughts are, of course, as you see that stock is um, moving higher. Moving higher this morning. Yeah, 10.30 from uh, Jeff. Join it, us.
4: It is pretty amazing just how different the tape looks this week than it did last week. And, and you look at kind of the idiosyncratic challenges that certain retailers face. Obviously, Carl, you pointed out Walmart, Target, Kohl's kind of in a different category, whereas the barbell of the higher income spender, which historically I probably wouldn't have put Macy's in that category, although obviously they do potentially have higher ticket items than, say, Walmart and Target, um, benefiting in this current environment, as well as the the dollars, dollar retailers of the world, Dollar Tree, Dollar General.
2: Uh, Adam Jonas of Morgan Stanley had a Uh, eye-opening report yesterday in which he argued that the bottom quintile of uh, the income spectrum of this country now has less excess cash Mm. than they did going into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And he thinks that's why you're seeing an increase in deep subprime auto delinquencies. He thinks that could make financial conditions tougher when you go to buy a car. 90% of the dollar value of cars is financed through some instrument. And he thinks that could create a what he called a buyer strike-like condition in the auto business. We're going to keep an eye on that, whether or not those at the the bottom end are really having to make tough choices with what's obviously happened in energy and food.
4: Yeah, and that's the discretionary part of it, where ultimately, higher gas prices, people have to make decisions. And, uh, you know, you've seen that with auto sales. You've seen that even in the housing market. I don't know how correlated that is to energy prices specifically, but obviously rates going up uh, has left a lot of buyers on the sidelines. And so whether that's an inflection point that we'll see ultimately play out in the data remains to be seen. But it's certainly data points worth watching.
3: Um, guys, didn't want to get to uh, that big deal. We've been talking about it for a few days. And in fact, we told you many of the details, uh, others reporting them uh, as well. Roughly 140. Well, it's going to be a bit less than that, certainly when you see Broadcom uh, shares trade. Although, again, they have already had three sessions to react to the possibility of buying VMware. 50-50 split cash and stock. Uh, It's an election. We'll get a little bit deeper into that in a moment as well. Um, and it was announced a few hours ago of course it's one of the biggest deals we've seen rivals really uh Microsoft's Activision deal in terms of the size let's call it roughly in the 60 billion dollar range there's the details though you can choose 14215 cash or 0.2520 Broadcom shares but eventually you get prorated into a prorated into a 50-50 split uh interestingly you know Michael Dell and Serverlake uh they own 50% of this thing so um, Dell may want more stock, you know, for being tax efficient. So that, that's something to keep an eye on here. and Maybe that's one reason why there's the election as well is included, because he was the main negotiator, along with Egon Durbin with Hoctan, across from HocTAN. That's also, you got that 40-day go shop uh, provision. Don't usually see that in a strategic deal. The financing is there, and they're talking about $8.5 billion in EBITDA uh, three years post-close being added by this um, and interestingly, 50-50 split. By the way, we can tell you why do you get a go shop? Well, in part, this deal came together, I'm told, in a few weeks. Hocktan approached Michael Dell a few weeks ago, said, hey, would you be interested? Uh, and they took it from there. Um, Dell owns some 40-plus percent. You put them together with uh, Silver Lake. They own half the company, so that's who you want to deal with. Got a break fee, I'm told, that somewhere around 1 or 1.2 percent. If, in fact, within the next 40 days, I think it's until July 5th, you were to get Get somebody else coming in over the top seems unlikely, but we'll see. Uh, and then two and a half percent either way. Um, and now let's talk about antitrust a bit as well, because uh, Leslie, that's always a question with so many of the deals out there these days. You know, if you go by traditional antitrust uh, thinking, yeah, you, you, you this deal should get done. Uh, but that doesn't mean that's where the antitrust regulators are these days. You know, conventional theory may say one thing. They may go in a different direction, probably going to take at least a year. Um, China approval is needed here. That becomes, you know, given the state of affairs between our two countries, you never know, although obviously they rely on a lot of of the product being made by this company as well. Uh, And then last time, people will point to Qualcomm and the hostile bid from Broadcom. I followed it so closely. It died because of Asifius. No. This is a U.S. company. At that point, I think it was based in Singapore. Still, though, perhaps more of a question mark than it otherwise would be. And so, we'll see. But man, so many of these deals, we're gonna be talking about them a year from now, and they're still not gonna be closed.
4: Well, what's amazing to me is that you said it came together in a few weeks. Yes. It's clear the regulatory process is gonna take quite a bit longer than that, but still 44% premium here. I think it's half of the combined company will focus on software.
3: That's right. And that's um, a great point because not many years ago, this was largely a hardware company. Now you're talking about what would end up being a 50-50 split in terms of revenues for this company, hardware and software. Not hard to imagine a few years from now somebody saying, you should split the company up. Well, uh, I
4: feel like we've seen this movie before. Yes, we with have. DM, Where it's definitely been a company that's combined and split up. It was owned by EMC. Uh, acquired by that company. And they are going to call
3: the software business now VMware because they feel like it has a good brand and obviously they feel like they can offer a very broad suite of products to the enterprise including most importantly what VMware has in terms of hybrid cloud and virtualization something they sort of pioneered. Um, But again it's going to take quite a while. Broadcom is a company that has lived with and lived on acquisitions. They get bigger and bigger in many ways, you could call it a roll-up, but Hoctan is applauded for his ability to potentially cut, uh, cut costs, but not necessarily hurt the growth rate of the acquired companies. They don't actually cut out software engineers, but mm-hmm. somehow they do a lot around sg We'll see if they get there. $8.5 billion is an awfully large number three years out in terms of the additional EBITDA.
4: Yeah, and I didn't see anything about synergies in the release right. in terms of actual cost-cutting, but to your point, Adding to that EBITDA number, I think it was three years out, yep. uh, is a pretty significant figure. So, strategically, obviously they're bullish on the just the, the space overall, or to your point, SGNA extractions and. and um, Going to be
3: issuing a lot of stock. Perhaps not a surprise they add 10 billion to an existing buy or a new buyback. They had 3 billion on the existing buyback, which would allow them to buy as much as 13 billion in shares back by the end of next year. Uh, so that will offset some of the shares being issued but again there are as you say they are talking about it being fairly accretive or quite accretive so you know we'll see and michael dell i mean it'll be interesting to see what his election is here hard to imagine somebody comes in over the top you never know though but that forty day go shop is an interesting addition in a deal you would not have expected to see it in
4: yeah that was my next question for you this idea that michael dell owns i think forty percent of the company of vmware and silver lake owns an additional ten percent does that basically get you over the hurdle for VMware shareholder approval yes, because yes. they've signed commitments? As now, long as the board is in the favor,
3: they will be in favor. So, yeah, that's not an issue. Um, but it does give them the opportunity, at least to say, given how quickly we came to a deal, is there somebody we missed? Is there somebody not out there? Because they really were bilateral talks. Cocktan, Tom Krause, Michael Dell, Egon Durbin did a lot of the key negotiating here.
4: Few people can spend the money for a $61 billion takeover. but That is true. It's clear the financing is there. Yes. Which is a, a supportive sign for the financing market.
2: That's true, too. That's a good point. When we come back, Deutsche's chief global strategist on why he thinks the market is pricing an imminent recession. Uh, we will get to NVIDIA and Snow. Got some airlines raising guidance. China Tech is interesting today. Apple report on production. Uh, revised GDP and Bitcoin below 29K. We're back in a moment. Every day. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Our next guest says the market is "quote pricing an imminent recession." Out with a note detailing his view, when he does lower his target to 47.50 from 52.50 for the end of the year. Joining us today, Deutsche's chief global strategist, Binky Chada. Binky, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having uh, Thanks for being here. I know um, you say our baseline view is for no recession imminently, but you were at 52.50. I wonder <laughs> if you think you stuck with that target for too long.
1: Uh, I would say, you know, we still see in our baseline view plenty of upside, just given, you know, sort of where we are, Uh, 52.50 would be a little bit higher for this year. But in the event that we do not have a recession, you know, plenty of upside to year end. And so we would get to 52.50, you know, sometime next year.
2: Uh, Sometime next year. Uh, In the event we do slide into a recession, you write imminently. We see the market sell-off going well beyond average, um, given initial overvaluation. Uh, is it, do I have this right? 35 to 40 percent of uh, the historical range or would take you back to 3K. Uh,
1: that's uh, exactly right, Carl. Uh, if you think about you know typical sell-offs during uh, recessions, what we've basically seen is that the extent of the sell-off in a recession depends you know, first and foremost, of course, on how severe the recession is going to be. So, if you think about, uh, you know, a median decline basically in earnings, which would be about 20, 21%. But what also drives the extent of uh, the sell-off during a recession is really the extent of overvaluation. And and you combine the two things together and you're talking about, uh, you know, well above average sell-off. And so, if you think about, You know, where we were at the recent low, basically down about uh, 18 percent, 18 percent compares with sort of, you know, an average or median uh, decline during a recession of 24 percent. So I'd say, you know, we're three quarters of the way there. but. It looks pretty binary, uh, you know, beyond that. And I don't think uh, matters get settled, basically, as to whether we're going to go into a recession or not. Uh, You know, I think it takes a couple of months. But yes, our baseline view is uh, clearly no recession. And I would say, you know, there's not uh, any signs yet. There's a number of reasons why we could get there, but uh, we're we're really not there yet.
4: We're not there yet. The curve did invert, which, Initially, was what really spooked the market about the potential for a recession, at least in the next 12 to 18 months at that point in time. Um, do you see no recession ever or just no imminent recession? Just wanted to clarify that.
1: Uh, in no imminent recession. Our uh, you know, baseline view is that we would go into a recession uh, late in 2023. It's just way too early right now.
4: Makes sense. I'm curious what you make of this week's market action, Um, because we've seen a a nice reversal for the broader (laughs) indexes. Of course, it's short lived. It's only a week. We don't know what to make of it from here. But do you think this is the market kind of catching its breath a little bit, Um, kind of seasonality to it, potentially some positive green shoots in in the data and in earnings? Um, Or do you think this is kind of the the indications that we have already uh, reached a bottom and could go higher from here?
1: Uh, So I would say, you know, this week coming into this week, we expected the week to be basically supportive of the market, basically on the technical front. We basically options expiration that's generally tended to be positive. Uh, We have basically month end because of the long weekend coming up uh, month end rebalancing into equities happening a little bit earlier. So that's supportive. Um, on the fundamental side, uh, you know, still a bit early, but uh, what I would say is, you know, the read from retail earnings appears to be the consumer is not dead or, 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 or dying, is just sort of rotating. We're trying to figure out still exactly how uh, uh, the consumer is rotating, but it seems to be a rotation story rather than a completely negative story. Uh, So, you know, we've had both technical and fundamentals, you know, support basically uh, the market this week. Uh, Not entirely, Uh, uh, um, you know, the tech earnings concerns are are, are still basically there. Uh, But I would argue, you know, uh, this is uh, more like a a reprieve than, uh, you know, a definitive bottom or any such thing. Uh, I mean, like I said, coming into this week, we expected, uh, uh, you know, the market to be pretty well supported.
2: Yeah. Interesting to your point about the consumer, that consumer spending was actually revised higher in the GDP number today, even though the headline uh, came down a touch. I do want to ask you about inflation expectations. There's a lot riding on PCE tomorrow. There's some chatter today about why five-year break-evens have become completely untethered from oil, let's say. Um, Why do you think that is? Which Mm -hmm. one has to break?
1: Uh, I, 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 which one has to break? In? Uh, I'm sorry, Carl, I didn't follow the question. But
2: between it, between inflation expectations and what energy is telling us.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, what I would say is, you know, broader, bigger picture, yes, Ernie, you know, uh, 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 there's been a strong correlation historically between break-even inflation rates and oil. But if you look at uh, oil prices... You know, we've sort of been going sideways in a rather wide range. So, you know, there's 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 no, uh, 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 you know, I mean, you wouldn't expect such volatile moves in uh, oil prices to, uh, you know, show up and uh, in, 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 in breakeven rates, you know, over the next 10 years. So, I would say the level is high and the you know the volatility is high. So, you know, it, it, it is going to basically make the the, the link uh, much more tenuous. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and obviously dealing with a lot of curveballs uh, geopolitically around the world, and that, that causes models uh, to be be kind of squirrely. Binky, appreciate it. Uh, expanding on that note from a couple days ago. Good to see you. Uh, Binky and Shada joining us from Deutsche. Yep.
5: pleasure.
4: Still to come, Macy's, a retail bright spot this morning. The stock is surging on better-than-expected quarterly results and guidance. Don't miss an exclusive with Macy's chairman and CEO Jeff Gannett in the next hour. Those shares up 15% right now. Taking a look. At the futures, as we count down to the opening bell, a bit of a mixed picture this morning, the Dow indicated to open up about 144 points. More Squawk on the Street when we return.
5: Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolacumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing or swelling of the face most common side effects include runny nose sore throat common cold symptoms flu or flu-like symptoms back pain high blood sugar and redness pain or bruising at the injection site visit rapatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA talk to your doctor today about rapatha. what's on the horizon for financial markets
2: Early part of the week suggested we were in for a difficult period of retail earnings, but with Dollar Tree, Dollar General leading the way today, we mentioned Macy's, talked about William Sonoma, Nordstrom yesterday, uh, a little bit more of a mixed picture, some more constructive comments about the consumer, which as we said, actually gets revised higher in this morning's revision of GDP for Q1. Opening bells coming up in five minutes.
1: Where demand is really, really high. And it requires a lot of components aside from just our chips, components and transceivers and connectors and cables and um, just, it's a really, it's a complicated system, the network, and uh, there are many physical components. And so so the supply chain has been problematic. We're doing our best and our our supply has been increasing from Q4 to Q1. We're uh, expecting it to increase uh, in Q2 and increase in Q3 and Q4.
2: At NVIDIA's Jensen Wong on the company's earnings call talking about supply chain. Uh, Auto pipeline of 11 billion over six years, but some of that stuff stuff is still difficult to get, didn't, despite what Volkswagen and Lenovo and Sony have said this week, and that is that supply chain pressures are actually getting a little easier.
4: Yeah, they're abating a little bit. But And what's interesting about NVIDIA is that analysts always talk about how well they've navigated the supply chain challenge until now. And they've reiterated that it's not necessarily a demand issue, but it's clear that some geopolitical forces were really at play here. It was, it was Russia where they lost out on sales. It was the COVID shutdowns in China. So it was kind of these maybe unforeseen aspects of their global supply chain that really led to uh, these muted forecasts?
3: Their outlook does assume, and I think that's where the stock is trading on the outlook, assumes about a half a billion relating to Russia and the China COVID lockdowns, just heard Leslie reference. They also estimate the impact of lower cell proof in Russia and China will affect their gaming sell-in by what they say is $400 million and the absence of sales to Russia having another $100 million impact. So that's how you get to that half a bill. Uh, overall, China being the key one, I guess, gaming sell-through. Even though you'd imagine all those poor people who are locked in are gaming a lot, it's about new sales.
4: Actually getting the chips over there. Yeah. Interestingly, according to Goldman, NVIDIA has the highest absolute short interest among hedge fund managers. That and their new kind of hedge fund roundup report. about $8 billion in short interest. So,
2: Let's get the opening bell here. And the CNBC real-time exchange with the big board, it's I-80 Goldcorp celebrating its listing of the NASDAQ, uh, celebrating a recent SPAC listing, MSP Recovery, specializing in recovering payments from Medicare and Medicaid. Pretty good breadth here as we're just 11 points from SP 4K. Uh, which some technicians have said you really need to see to confirm that the uh, overall downtrend is no longer intact. Watch Apple today. Uh, Bloomberg's got a report uh, that says they are looking, telling suppliers they're looking to keep iPhone production flat for the year. Speaking of some of the troubles in China, which is also interesting, David, because there's been more reporting now that at least the premier, Li, is privately telling people, this lockdown is not working. We cannot ask these companies to remain locked down. And that's feeding speculation that there is some kind of gridlock or rift among the party elite in China.
3: That's fascinating. Always so hard to sort of get a real sense as to what's going on there, although our Eunice Yun does a great job of informing us. There's a look at that. I mean, she has attached so much of his credibility, though, to these lockdowns that there are many who believe that he can't pull back, in a sense, because it really would dent his overall credibility. But we know the impact that it's having, at least on companies. We talk about it every day. We just talked about it with NVIDIA. And, uh, we've obviously heard from Chuck Robbins last week at Cisco, which was a very strong, sort of strong indicator of the broader issues in terms of getting product out of China or the lack thereof for Apple as well in terms of sales. We've talked a lot about nobody bought a car in the entire month. In Shanghai. In Shanghai. Yeah. Um, and obviously we know Tesla Shanghai uh, factory is uh, back uh, up and running, but um, we still don't have the full impact here in the sense of it, I guess.
4: Yeah, and you've got Secretary Blinken giving that speech on uh, US-China relations and kind of how they see things shaping up from here today. That's a long-awaited speech that got rescheduled. I think due to, what us? COVID. Um, But obviously an important indicator to watch. There's
2: Tesla, by the way, speaking of China and uh, execution risk. Jeffries today cuts. They were at 1250. They go to 1050. They keep the buy, but they cite what they're calling a pileup of negative news. Uh, A lot of execution now they say solely depends on Musk. And speaking of Musk, Eh, We're still working through this amended 13D, right?
3: Uh, You know, more more things to tell you about in terms of uh, Elon Musk and his uh, his pending purchase of Twitter. But it also relates to Tesla because he may be able to or maybe perhaps trying to take a little bit of pressure off Tesla shares because there's no longer a margin loan. Now, by the way, he also is paying. You got to pay for that, right? Why, Why not get rid of it if you can in terms of what it's costing him? Interest wise, uh, or would cost him, but there's a look at Twitter shares, they're up, because this is generally seen as a positive in terms of hey, he's still doing things that do indicate he's going to buy the company. Um, But uh, the news was there's no longer a margin loan. Remember, he raised the almost $7 billion uh, in equity commitments previously that was going towards reducing the size of the margin loan, and now he says, you know what, I'm getting rid of it altogether. after giving effect to that margin loan commitment parties and the 6.25 billion in margin loans to fund a part of it, we're not going to do that. I'm going to provide another 6.25 billion in equity, um, which raises the question: Okay, is that just coming out of your pocket, future sales of Tesla, or is there ability to raise more equity? My, what I've been hearing, is that he could raise more equity if he wanted to. Uh, initially. The thought was he would stop at roughly $7 billion. Remember, you got Ellison in there for as much as a billion. You had Fidelity. You had a bunch. You have Awa lead rolling. Jack Dorsey still may roll his mm-hmm. stake, stepping off the board as was expected. But, Leslie, there are a lot of people who want to invest with Elon Musk. And a lot. You, you can't. Uh, you can't question why. I mean, the man figures out a way to make a lot of money and yeah. a lot of money for his shareholders as well. If you can deepen the ties to him, maybe that helps you as well with allocations if and when SpaceX goes public, who knows? But there are any number of uh, people I'm, I've heard who would want to uh, invest. Now i would heard as well, though, he wasn't going to allow for special purpose vehicles, in other words, sort of get a group of high net worth individuals together in an mm-hmm. SPV. That was something that my understanding was the NDA did not allow for if you signed on. But um, we'll see if he raises more equity.
4: What I want to know is given just what Twitter shares have done recently and how far they are away from the price at which he's willing to pay, at which he, his equity would be uh, contributed at, how many other investors are willing to kind of contribute at that price? Now, Jack Dorsey and others rolling over, that, that's price insensitive, but how many people can you get to pay, Was it, $54.20 a share given that Twitter's now trading at 38 Eighty-eight, and and does he just then go buy in the open market? You know, and is there are there restrictions there?
3: There are, and that's a great question. And I've been exploring that. He signed an NDA. He's violating, by the way, that NDA all the time. But he signed it, and it would put him in possession of material non-public information, which would mean that he cannot buy in the open market. Because your your question is a really good one. Why wouldn't he go about buying another three billion at thirty-eight, bring his mm-hmm. average cost way down on twenty percent? Not to mention, and that takes care of a lot of his equity commitment, and he's doing it at a at a steep discount. Of course, the discount that we're seeing to what we would typically imagine the spread might be is because of him, <laughs> and he and he doesn't stop. Last night, you know, Twitter, um, Twitter reached this settlement with regulators, 150 million bucks. I just want to make sure I get it exactly right, but. Uh, Right, it was uh, about, what was it, uh, 150 million uh, after federal law enforcement officials accused them of improperly collecting and uh, selling user data to mm-hmm. advertisers. And then Musk tweets, if Twitter was not truthful here, what else is not true? This is very concerning news. The only thing is that this has been disclosed in their annual report since 2019. So,
4: you know, he just keeps
3: doing this. The
4: bots were disclosed.
3: Uh, Yeah, everything's been disclosed.
4: Everything has been disclosed. Um,
3: He can question the bots, and he can have a genuine question as to what the real number is and whether it really is impacting revenue, but it's been disclosed. So that goes back to, yeah, there's the tweet. And again, since 2019, Elon, it's been in there, you knew about this, but you're using it as another opportunity to just sow discontent and discord and I don't know what he's up to. Very few people seem to, uh, but I'm sh- he's way smarter than I am.
4: So. One question, too, when you talk about the equity commitment is just the pressure that Tesla shares have been un- under as a result of the margin loan Yes, and the fact that people were worried that it was getting kind of close to that level where right. he could be facing a margin call. I think it was just about $100 per share above that level and it has gone down so much this year um, as a result of the interconnectivity between these two deals and how he's pl- h- pledging his collateral here. Um, so, if he is going to raise more equity, you have to wonder whether that would come from Tesla. And shares seem to be acting, reacting pretty neutrally today.
3: Right. I to mean, we'd sense. expected this might be seen as a positive because mm-hmm. it might take a little bit of pressure off. Uh, but to your point, yes, if he's going to raise, he's got another six plus billion he's got to raise. And he said he's not come.
4: going to. He said I he was know. done selling, but, I know, but he's but said things y- Yeah, he's,
3: I had a tendency to say things in the past that then he did the opposite call. So. Uh,
2: yeah, I think some people might argue maybe not always a man of his word, or at least changes his mind with a lot of frequency. I think the Bernstein <laughs> margin call target would be somewhere in the high threes, mm. 380, something like that. That's Tony Saganaki's math. But, Obviously,
3: yeah, I don't know the de- I don't know the details of the loan commitment itself. Doesn't matter anymore. It's gone away. Right, yep. um, now, don't forget, you still got the 12 and a half, almost 13 billion in actual financing for Morgan Stanley. Discussed that yesterday. That remains quite secure. Um, you know, that's a secured bridge, an unsecured bridge, a, a, a lot of different components there um, that is priced fairly high. Libor, what was it? Libor plus. That's all on the proxy. Libor plus $475 on the $6.5 billion term, and then $675 with 50 basis point bumps, uh, sort of flex there each month if they don't bridge it out, uh, and then the unsecured bridge as well. So that's his main financing, and the rest is up to him.
4: And others who potentially and want to invest who, alongside Elon exactly, Musk, which, exactly. as you point out, yep. um, there are plenty of ple- people that are clamoring to invest. I think a lot more than perhaps. The market may have expected at the outset of this
2: yeah yeah our guys were above uh, 4k uh, for the first time in several sessions Uh, dows up almost 350 here almost every sector's red we should mention uh, travel and leisure along with retail uh, definitely leading the charge today got two airlines either um, saying these are raising guidance in the case of uh, southwest raising q2 revenue guidance as bookings accelerate Uh, they see top line uh, 12 to 15 prior was 8 to 12 Uh, and if you take out fuel Cost for per available seat mile, they say, uh, stays unch- unchanged, which some would take as a positive. JetBlue also pretty good guide on booking strength. The question is. Do you want to see that? Uh, Do you want to see that these fares are sticking in a period where so much of the market is pinning their hopes on easing inflation? And we know airfares have been a huge uh, component uh, to uh, inflation CPI.
4: Well, I guess if you're buying those really nice outfits from Macy, you're gonna have to get on an airplane and fly to those occasions that you've purchased the outfit for. Uh, But to your point, it's really interesting where you're seeing price sensitivity and where you're not seeing price sensitivity. Cars, you're seeing some of that cool off a little bit. Housing, you're seeing some of that cool off a little bit. Um, You know, the middle-tier retail, you're seeing that cool off a a little bit. Higher end, things that are expensive, like airfares, continue to kind of churn. And, um, you know, if you've booked flights recently, you know it is, there are quite a few zeros in those those tickets.
3: Um, I wanted to hit Alibaba, a name we haven't hit lately, and there was a time when we would have uh, gone right to it, uh, because it's up uh, and up nicely, 8.4%. This is a stock still that's down 25% for the year, even with this rise today in Alibaba shares, not to mention last year, which was horrible for it, of so many different headwinds. We talked about the COVID lockdowns, of course, being the latest changes in terms of the regulation of technology companies with a focus in part on uh, the company's founder. Uh, Jack Ma uh, along the way but it was a better quarter than might have been expected at least when it comes to EBITDA and EBITTA uh, modestly ahead of expectations as well at least according to a couple of the notes that I'm looking at here from the analysts who follow the company. Cloud revenue though decelerated from the prior quarter it was up 12% year over year uh, EBITDA was uh, actually down 30% over year but but up from what had well, at least higher I should say than what had been anticipated uh, and we've talked a lot about the shellacking these shares have taken, a $240 billion market value. It wasn't that long ago I can remember this company had a six, 700000000000 billion market value. <laughs> um, and that has impacted SoftBank, which we've also talked about a lot. Of course, remember, they own 25% of Alibaba, roughly. And so SoftBank does, in part, move along with Baba. So you'd expect the shares of SoftBank will be seeing a bump as well. But, you no, know, Carl. Given all the concerns in China, perhaps it came in a bit better than had been anticipated uh, for the company, um, and certainly no worse than underlying expectations. Overall GMV, by the way, declined at what is a low single-digit rate. As you take a look at SoftBank shares as well,
2: we should probably briefly touch on Snowflake. Yeah, um, but mostly the, the qualitative commentary about companies and clients consuming less. Uh, than the company anticipated. Uh, Slootman argues that a lot of that is unique to the nature of the client itself, uh, but this is an all-time low on snow. I think we're gonna talk to Slootman tomorrow on Tech Check 116. IPO price was 120, if you recall, on day one, went to 253. Yeah. Uh, so another, another broken IPO.
3: And a name that Jim, of course, has talked about a great deal. He has a lot of uh, respect. Potentially some affection for Mr. Slootman, but he also taught. We've talked a lot about the incredible multiple this company's stock had. It was reflective of the level, to a certain extent, of speculation in the markets. Let's call it, what is it, a year and a half ago at this point? Yeah. Uh, sort of the summer of, uh, of 2020. 2020. 2020 20, right? right? Yeah, so. it started then, yeah. Um, specifically, some of our large customers where we saw a decline, we've taken down their forecasts, said, uh, said uh, Snowflake's uh, executives on the call. We have others that are offsetting partially some of that. And he did say in April, they did see weakness in week over week growth in their total revenue by customer. Um, But the last two weeks of March or May, he said, also had been very strong. Market doesn't like it at all.
4: Not at all. And it'll be interesting to see the extrapolations to, we know what that says about the enterprise customer itself, if they're reigning in that spending.
2: So overall, s and is up a couple hundred points here uh, in uh, just a w- little more than a week. Let's get to Bob Passani. Hey, Bob.
6: Yeah, in fact, we closed at 3,900 on the S&P, Carl. Uh, we just crossed 4,000 uh, this morning at the open, 4,021. We're at the highs. Uh, for the day, the difference between today and yesterday is growth isn't quite as strong as yesterday. So tech generally opened weaker, although it strengthened uh, as we've gone on through uh, the last 12 or 13 minutes. So it's up fractionally here, but you see consumer discretionary, which is the weakest sector in the S&P this year, uh, bound, rebounding. Industrials and energy. The difference here from yesterday is those uh, mega-cap tech stocks. So you know we had Nvidia with, I guess you would call it a muted sales outlook. It opened to the downside, but so. Uh, still down, but better than it was at the open. Apple, still down. Microsoft, advanced Micro, they were down at the open and now doing a little bit better. So already coming off of the lows. The market's a lot more stable in the last few days. And I think largely this is on hopes that the Fed policy may be moderating a bit in the second half of the year. That's still a hope. Uh, there's definitely signs the economy is slowing. And a lot of the bulls keep messaging me about the, PCA, the PCE data on Friday here. Uh, so the core data is expected to come in at 4.9%. It was 5.3% in February. So they're trying to create this narrative that we've had peak inflation. If they can put together enough data points, they can now make a real strong argument. Uh, I don't think the Fed's going to change its position on a single data point. They've made that pretty clear. But at least there's an attempt here uh, to try to say we're near peak inflation. Heaven knows uh, if that'll actually happen. Meantime, there's a lot of signs that things are cooling. I was impressed with the true card data yesterday. This is a, you A car company is new and used cars but used car sales were clearly moderating your May sales uh, were down 17% year over year. they, called the, they talked about a demand adjustment that was going on here. The average used prices down 1.6% in May versus April. So this supports this narrative. Okay, peak inflation we're seeing right now. But pessimism is still the norm. Did you see these AAII numbers here? Uh, bearish, 53%. These numbers are twice what the historic norm was. Only 19% were bullish here. Uh, this is... Pretty bad numbers and they really haven't come off of the floor in a long time. Meantime, uh SEC Chair Gary Gensler spoke at the ICI conference this morning. Uh and yesterday the SEC did float some new proposals uh to increase disclosure for ESG funds and to broaden the rules on naming funds to prevent these deceptive titles. Gensler has expressed a lot of concern that a lot of these mutual funds and ETFs use titles that are fuzzy or indistinct, like ESG or we're low carbon. He wants them to tighten up the rules and say clearly uh, what they're about. Now, he was asked about this very aggressive rules agenda, uh, which he's generated And it's generated a lot of pushback from people in the business community. He said this was all part of an effort to modernize and update the SEC's mandate. Here's what he said. We have these two projects right now, cyber risk disclosure, which you didn't mention, and climate risk disclosure for issuers. And we've seen literally tens of trillions of dollars of assets under management, some represented in your room right there of 600 people in the ballroom that say, you know, we'd like some greater consistency because of all this fragmentation. There's a lot more going on here than cyber and climate risk, Carl. He has over 50 proposals on the rules agenda of all sorts, dozens of different items. These are the two generating the most controversy right now. So we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, The rules on climate disclosure, by the way, Do June 17th, the commentary from the public community already generating an awful lot of
2: pushback. Carl, back to you. We've talked for a while, uh, Bob, about the number of pots he's got boiling. Climate, China, crypto, SPACs at one point. Uh, and it's interesting to hear how he sort of ladders those out. Who? What's a priority? The, the important
6: thing that he keeps saying is, look, I'm just trying to modernize the rules. The world has changes. It has changed. Dramatic changes uh, in electronic trading. Dramatic changes in the way people look at the world. The SEC's mandate from the 1930s is to protect the consumer. And that's all I'm trying to do. The problem here is that in saying he's trying to modernize, he's also asking for dramatic increases in disclosure around everything. And the business community is starting to say, wait a minute, it's one thing to modernize. It's another to overwhelm us with a lot of regulatory burdens and new disclosure rules. And that's where the line gets drawn. Where is that line?
2: I appreciate that, Okay, uh, Bob Pisani. Uh, but as we go to break here, take a look at the bond report. Look how treasuries are faring. It's one reason why you're seeing some relative strength in equities today. S&P 4020 got the 10-year a little bit lower, back below 274. Of course, PCE, as we said, a lot riding on that tomorrow. But already the market taking out almost a full hike from later in the year. We're back in a moment. McDonald's annual shareholder meeting set to begin just a few moments from now. Our Kate Rogers joins us with more on what to expect and what's been a pretty busy news period for the company, Kate
0: certainly has been, Carl. Good morning. The shareholder meeting is getting underway in this next hour and it's showtime for Carl Icahn who, remember, launched a proxy fight with the company over a treatment of pregnant pigs. Icahn has collaborated with the Humane Society which is proposing that McDonald's stop using gestational crates for pregnant pigs by the end of 2022. Now, McDonald's says that by the end of the year up to 90% of its U.S. pork will come from pigs in group housing systems or crate-free pork if those pigs are confirmed to be pregnant. Icahn has also proposed two director nominees to the board to support this mission. Now, proxy advisory firms Glass-Lewis and ISS have recommended that shareholders vote with McDonald's on all of its board nominees and against Icon. The Wall Street Journal reported just yesterday that based on early voting, Icon's proposal was set to fail. McDonald's also recommended voting no on all proposals here. Now, the second big proposal comes from an investment group on a third-party civil rights audit analyzing the adverse impact of McDonald's policies and practices on civil rights of company stakeholders. In a statement, the executive director of the group said, quote, this audit would encompass a review of policies on racial justice and sexual harassment issues that are front and center for workers, consumers and shareholders alike. McDonald's has advised shareholders to vote no on that audit as well, saying in a statement that it's aligned with the proposal's stated goals, but that shareholders would be, quote, better served by our vigilant focus on the robust strategies, assessments and reporting processes that are currently underway. So certainly a jam packed meeting for McDonald's today. Back over to you.
3: Thanks, Kate. Yeah, you know, uh, my understanding is, I mean, Icon got roughly 1%. uh, So he's no chance. But he raised this issue, though, whether for good or bad, he raised this issue about these gestational crates, I guess. Uh, I mean, he doesn't like to lose, but we certainly know more about it now, I I suppose, than we did previously. I don't really know, and perhaps you do, I'm asking how widely used they are or, you know, how important an issue it is for other other uh, uh, companies uh, in the fast food industry?
0: Well, I can tell you, McDonald's, David, says it sources about 1% of all U.S. pork. So it's certainly small on their part. And as you mentioned, Icon does have this about $50,000 stake or so, so it's very small for him. Uh, His nominees have not been backed by these big proxy advisory firms or any of the big institutional investors. They're also all siding with McDonald's. I know you said he doesn't like to lose, but it's certainly an interesting battle in that no one really seems to be taking his side, despite raising awareness for this issue.
2: Uh, McDonald shares back above the 200-day for the first time in a couple of weeks. Kate, thank you. We'll watch that. Uh, Kate Rogers, when we come back, got an exclusive with Macy's Jeff Gannett. On the heels of those earnings, Dow's up 400. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.
5: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. because.